Welcome to MUFG APEC Insights Podcast. In today's episode, we continue with the second part of our discussion on the global energy transition. Shiv Sivaraja, Head of Energy and Resources for APEC, Ian Catterall, Head of Natural Resources for EMEA, and Isan Coleman, Head of Emerging Markets Research for EMEA, discuss how this relates to companies at a micro level within the oil and gas sector. The following podcast is for information purposes only. It is intended for professional investors and eligible counterparties, and not for retail clients. Any content should not be regarded as an offer to conduct investment businesses or investment recommendations. Good morning, ladies and gentlemen, and welcome to this podcast. My name is Ian Casherall, and along with my colleagues, Isan Koman and Shiv Sivaraja, we are going to discuss today the energy transition and more specifically how this relates to individual companies at a micro level within the oil and gas sector. Before we go into that, I think it's relevant for us to mention the recent IEA report uh, concerning reaching net zero emissions by 2050, because I think this will be very important in framing the discussions going forward. So it's something that we all need to take account of. So this is not just about oil and gas, it is about a whole um, range of other industries. It's about transportation, it's about intensive energy users such as the cement industry. So I think if we restrict the discussion to oil and gas, then we will be uh, missing the relative importance of, of other industries. But for the sake of today's podcast, it, we will focus on the oil and gas sector. So the pressure is on for energy companies to address the risks and opportunities the climate change poses for their businesses. And this is what we really want to talk about today, how the largest energy companies are navigating the complex and evolving investment, technology and policy trends to better adapt towards the next normal in the energy transition. The pressure is on for energy companies to address the risks and opportunities that climate change poses for their businesses. And this is what we want to talk about today, how the largest energy companies are navigating the complex and evolving investment, technology and policy trends to better adapt towards the next normal in the energy transition. Now, our homework to date on the energy transition brings us to three distinct strategic elements categorized as prolong, prepare and pivot, which are used by energy companies to build their transition strategies. Now, let's take a look at each of these in turn. Isan, handing over to you, could you take us through the prolonged strategy? Thanks, Ian. So kicking off with the prolonged segment, which are energy entities that have little in the way of transition ambition, with a broadly business-as-usual stance with core oil and gas exposures. And here, we are predominantly discussing corporates that have no scope three targets, which are more broader in the value chain than those of scope one and two and comprise around 90% of the total carbon impact. And here we have companies that are entering the low carbon investment environment cautiously, or indeed not at all, concluding that it is more prudent currently to, to merely monitor the directional pulse of the market rather than preparing or pivoting towards changing the operating model, but indeed questioning the need to act. And in this segment, we are witnessing energy companies monitoring regulatory dynamics keeping up with carbon pricing and investing in carbon offsets. There are uh, recognitions of the risks physically to reduce damage from adverse weather related effects such as droughts, 
flooding and cyclones, as well as the risks to shareholder value through the potential loss of market valuation over the long term should action not be taken in line with broader markets. Lisa, why on earth would anyone want to prolong? You know, unless they've been living under a stone, I, I can't see how this makes any sense. Oh, indeed, Ian. I think that's a great point. And while this subject can be very emotive, let's try without judgment to objectively consider what could justify such a course of action. There are two things that jump into my mind. Uh, the first is very simply risk, uh, which is that if you continue to operate within your core competence, you're going to have lower execution risk. So if you do what you've always done before, you're, not, you're less likely to get things wrong. And the second one is reward. Um, the historic project IRRs, that's the internal rate of return for upstream projects, have notoriously been very high when they're successful. And obviously, these are uh, typically a bit higher than the, the project um, IRRs for uh, some of the renewable type projects or the new types of energy projects. So by sticking with this strategy, you could um, protect your future returns for shareholders in theory. And also, there could be one or two more oil and gas cycles. And so these companies could make an absolute killing in the short and medium term by staying focused in terms of effort and costs and then gradually wind down. But notwithstanding that, we are expecting there to be issues related to ongoing access to capital and liquidity, not to mention the social license to operate, which will be waning in some jurisdictions more than others. Oh, I agree with you, Ian, and, but, but, and, and, you know, and I do fully agree with that point, but I think it's w interesting to compare this situation with the tobacco and firearms industries. And I mentioned those two industries because there are many financial stakeholders that are very careful around supporting tobacco and firearms, but both industries, unfortunately, remain very buoyant. Um, now, I, I actually do think that the current path of the coal industry where we have seen a lot of financial institutions, insurance companies, banks, equity investors walk away, could be a good leading indicator for oil, particularly in the medium to long term. Maybe we could move on to the next strategy. Uh, Asan, could you talk us through a little bit on the prepare segment? Sure, Shiv. So in terms of prepare, to energy companies within this bucket is that there is a recognition acceptance and, and effective steps are being taken on accelerating change towards a new operating model whilst preserving the core parts of the hydrocarbon business. And what we are seeing with these entities is a strong collaboration with peer competitors, taking advantage of potential economies of scale gained from partnerships, even in some cases jointly exploring investment options in new technologies. So some more context here. Clearly, reg regulations and reputational risks are propelling energy companies to reduce their own emissions, such as curbing methane flaring, sequestering uh, carbon dioxide, and sourcing renewable power for oil and gas facilities. From this, companies in the prepare camp are setting targets and making investments to decarbonize the energy they sell to consumers. And so a mix of employing low carbon technologies for a move to a more cyclical uh, operational model developing a digitization strategy and using more renewable energy sources juxtaposed against the need to invest to cut fossil fuel production emissions through routine flaring, reducing fugitive emissions, carbon capture and storage initiatives, and developing carbon sinks will increasingly garner momentum in the years to come in our view. 
So thanks, Asan. So maybe if I can summarize, in a nutshell, this basically means reducing emissions and therefore protecting your social license to operate, but largely sticking to your main business for now. And I should sort of underline that for now. There may be a greater pivot towards sub-segments that are perhaps under less pressure than oil, for instance, liquefied natural gas and petrochemicals, but ultimately any ventures into new energy, and I should clarify that as a source of revenue, uh, as opposed to using new energy to reduce your emissions, any ventures into new energy will be done much more carefully. Shiv, I think that's a reasonable strategy. Not everyone can lead and betting the house makes no sense for some of the smaller oil and gas companies, including most independents. The focus on these companies should be on advantaged assets, cash generation and resilience to low prices, um, building up strong balance sheets and making sure they're in the top quartile from an environmental perspective. Yes, I, I think that's right. In other words, make yourself hard to ignore for equity investors, right? The high level of uncertainty in terms of new energy demand and timing makes this a popular strategy. And Ian, you mentioned independence on the basis of financial wherewithal, but even national oil companies who may have great financial power need to balance the transition with their government decreed mandates. But what are the risks of following this very rational route? Well, fortune favours the brave. And if you stay with this route, you're giving up the opportunity to influence the industry. And so those who are choosing to lead stand to reap the biggest reward because they are taking the biggest risk. Yeah, no, that's that's a fair point. I mean, I would argue that those who are already on the front line um, of, of pushing forward, i.e. the super majors, if we really look at them, were always better positioned to influence the industry and other stakeholders. Uh, as smaller companies are inherently less influential. But But it is a fair point, I'll give you that. I would add that you're potentially putting yourself in the firing line due to a lack of clarity. So if you stick to this sort of middle of the ground uh, strategy, um, the danger is people look at you as someone who is more talk than action. Okay, so enough on uh, that one. How about we move on to the final strategy, the pivot strategy? Asan, would you mind taking us through what that means? Sure, Shiv. So the pivot segment is effectively the energy companies that are transitioning from big oil to big energy with a zero oil vision. By that, we mean a complete elimination in scope one, two, as well as three emissions from the hydrocarbon and extracts, unless emissions can be sequestered or offset. So only really a few select entities have come forward in the pivot camp so far, with motivations for doing so at such an early stage, some could argue is the need to lead from the front, whether they are seen as market leaders and or whether they believe that the increasingly onerous disclosure requirements and or the value creation as well as the emergence of new markets and investment opportunities warrants an earlier pivot in the transition. And so here we see a real shift towards more low carbon products, such as higher gas production, increasing fuel outputs and the development of hydrogen, notably green hydrogen, solutions for power, heating and transportation, and separately the need to provide new energy services, such as residential energy retail mobility service offerings and providing business energy solutions towards the new normal. Wonderful. So I feel like we're on much safer ground now, Jen, so I'm a lot more comfortable. Ian, is a pivot strategy a good idea? Well, I, it's, it's the best thing for the environment. And we've already touched on the values of leadership and proactiveness, as well as the social license to operate and having a better narrative for investors. 
and lenders who will become increasingly careful in this space. I would add that I think this makes sense for many of the super majors. They have the scale, money, project management experience, risk appetite and engineering skill set to take this risk and lead the charge. If successful, of course, it also leaves them as powerful actors in the energy industry during and after the transition. Yeah, I agree. Those are really important points, right? You want, you do want to control your destiny. Um, one other point I would add is related to just attracting talent, just a simple HR point. You know, uh, as a question, how do you attract a bright 20-something engineer who has a 30 to 40-year career ahead of them to the oil and gas industry? Right. If if you if you're not showing, demonstrating that you are going to be a major player in the in the energy industry, how would you do that? And the super majors in particular have always maintained their position, partly because they could always get the best people. No, I I agree with that. Now let's get back into deeper waters. So Shiv, what are the cons of a pivot? Well, I'd love to play it safe and say that there are no cons, but but in all seriousness. There's always there's always some risk related to doing things that are that are different and particularly things on the frontier. So the key ones I would point to are execution risk, um, the sheer fact that timing a complex market evolution, which is what this is, timing it is extremely hard. I mean, one simple question, which technology is going to prosper of all the great new energy technologies on a similar note, moving away from core competences is risky for any business. I would also note that changing business model means changing culture and way of working. You know, upstream oil and gas is a very niche, novel way of doing things. And um, the power business is very different, for example. And the final point I'd probably make on this is the lower expected IRRs. I talked, I touched on this earlier. Um, but if you move into the power business, the IRRs are going to be different. Now, how does a reluctant equity market take to that? Interesting, Sheev. Thanks. And on that equity market point, it's, it's worth noting that from a mere comparison perspective, going back to 2019, prolonged companies have on average outperformed prepare companies by 17% in terms of share price performance and have outperformed by over 33% pivot companies. And so global markets clearly are rewarding, at least for now, entities in the prolonged camp. So, Jens, I think it's a good point to begin to wrap conversation with certainly a lot to keep us and the broader market engaged in what is really turning out to be a pivotal year in the energy transition. Absolutely. Uh, the key thing for everyone to keep in mind is that there isn't going to be an industry-wide liquidation event in the face of the energy transition. Even the European majors are in no rush to sell cash-generating assets below forward curve prices. Exactly. Uh, and on the contrary, Recycling upstream cash flow into low carbon businesses is a cornerstone of many of their strategies. But Ian, what should every oil and gas company be thinking of considering the market we're in now? I think there's a number of things that they can, can focus on. I think they need to be very clear and measurable in how they communicate with the investor community. I think there needs to be a focus on efficiency. Um, one of my pet bugs is methane leakage. So they need to really focus on that as well as flaring and venting. They need to consider their partners as well, which host countries they're going to operate in and which uh, field partners they work with. And then the real focus on new energy as, as a new business within those companies. Yeah, great points, uh, Ian. Um, it, it seems that no matter what your strategy is, uh, whether you fit in any of those three camps, you need to be thinking very carefully and almost on a daily basis 
There is so much to keep us and markets engaged this year on transition-related deliberations. I'm sure that we're going to be talking about this subject uh, more and more, and hopefully on this sort of platform going forward. At this point, gentlemen, thank you very much for your time. I hope for you, the audience uh, listening, that you enjoyed uh, listening to our views, and we look forward to engaging with you directly very soon. Thank you. Bye-bye. Thank you for listening to the MUFG APEC Insights Podcast. This episode is available on Podbean, Apple Podcast, and Spotify. Rate, review, and subscribe, and reach out to an MUFG sales representative for business inquiries.